90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Just wrapping it up. Super excited. <laughs> Last podcast from field camp for this year. Yay. I mean, you know. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's been, you chose a really bad time to leave Colorado because this weather has been the best weather I've had at camp in the last eight years. Unbelievable. Yeah, I've uh, I've seen that's been pretty nice out there and it's been unusually wet here if you've been watching the news. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's flooding everywhere, right? It's flooding here, it's flooding in Oklahoma. You're not having a good time. Yes, we've had a very anomalous amount of rain, including like Sunday when there wasn't a lot in the original forecast, uh, me getting actually stuck for a while <laughs> because all the roads around me were flooded. Oh my gosh, that's more on the way? Uh, it looks like we might dry out for this week, so... Yeah. I'm crossing my fingers. It's definitely time to get out of here because it got to 90 degrees today. So, yeah, we're out. (laughs) Yeah, I don't want to hear about that. (laughs) Yeah, because it's going to be 55 tonight. But I won't say anything else and rub it in. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. Um, So, yeah, it's uh, it's been quite an adventure. Made it back from Pennsylvania with a successful equipment install. Oh, excellent. That's good. So lots of fun electronics and uh, always the, you know, turning it on initially is kind of nerve wracking, mm-hmm. especially after you shipped it. And mm-hmm. so we got everything hooked up and I flipped the big switch and I said, well, it looks like things are turning on. And one of the grad students goes, well, what about that smoke? And I thought they were <gasps> joking, uh, but they weren't. <laughs> So, uh, unfortunately, our shipper had damaged a power supply during shipment, and it just completely ate itself. Oh, man. So, overnighting is a wonderful thing, and we had a replacement power supply the next morning, and we're off and running. Oh, that's great. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So, even if somebody says that, always check. (laughs) Yes, even if you think they're being funny. Exactly. Um, Well, that's awesome. Um, do you have travel coming up soon, or are you done? For a uh, I'm here for two weeks. My gosh. <laughs> and and then I'm down for a few days at the Scientific Python Conference. Oh, well, I always love that, because you always come back with really great stuff from there. Right, though I'm there not for the whole conference. I'm just there to teach a tutorial this time, and then I've got to come back. Oh, how sad. Yeah, I'm not getting to stay the whole time. My My new employer has a pretty strict policy on <laughs> conference travel uh, awesome mitzi i know yeah <laughs> that's great um but it'll be fun anyway oh yeah and we'll have lots of fun updates from that uh so and you know i've actually talked to some folks in person about the show they were saying they really enjoyed our more technical episodes so i think we might have to go back and revisit some of our tech topics as well I mean, great. (laughs) (laughs) Not today, buddy. Today we're going to keep talking about rocks. (laughs) Yeah. So today we we promised that we would go back and talk about Dunham's classification for carbonates because we talked about Folk's classification for carbonates last week. Right. 
Um, and we talked about folks classification for sedimentary rocks too, which is the more commonly used. And I would say that Dunham's classification for carbonate rocks is more commonly used than folk. And it's a little bit different than folk, although there are clearly a lot of similarities because they're just all carbonate rocks after all. They are. And this is the one that I certainly use the most. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I also think it's a little bit simpler. Uh, it is. It makes, I don't know, it makes more sense. Um, <laughs> so there's the highest level of the classification of Dunham scheme, which was done around the same time uh, that Folk scheme was in the 1960s, which I imagine was, I wonder if it was like contentious. I don't know, actually. I don't know the background behind these. Um, but obviously there was a lot of... It's a of... very specific topic to have contention it... <laughs> over. <laughs> Hey, there have been lesser feuds in science, and you know it. <laughs> yes, it's true. <laughs> this is how you name all sedimentary rocks. This is a huge deal. Yeah, and so the kind of nice thing about Dunham, at least for me, is it's very much a branching decision tree. Yes, yes. It's not this, well, it's so much percent this and so much percent this, but you have to ignore this part. No. You start asking questions, and at the end of the questions of this choose-your-own-adventure game, there's a name. (laughs) Man, that's really true. I guess I never put that together that way, but that is true. So, hmm, yeah. Well, the first branch, instead of being like, what is this percentage of mud or whatever that you have, um, is a little bit easier than that. It's, did you have stuff in this carbonate rock that was bound together at deposition, or did you not? Oh, see, I'm going to go one level above <gasps> you. There's a question you have to ask oh. before that. Oh, no. Okay. And uh, I'm very curious because you'll probably argue with me on this. Uh, I will. <laughs> so the first question you have to ask is, is there a depositional texture period? Oh, okay. I won't because argue with you on that. <laughs> if there's not, you just have what would be called crystalline carbonate. Yeah. All right. So... Can you see anything at all in it? If no, this is the name. Crystalline (laughs) Carbonate. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. Uh, I mean, okay, so my argument will be (laughs) you have to see crystals in it, though. You have to see crystals, yes, but there doesn't have to be anything else in it. Correct. Because a mudstone can be, you know, nothing in it either, really, but you also can't see that it's a crystalline rock right yeah so to me a mudstone still has a depositional texture because it's things not a big chunk Hmm. of amorphous carbonate we'll argue that some more yeah (laughs) when when we get further down the tree (laughs) so so, so that's to me that's the first question but okay that is do you ever get to really say crystalline carbonate probably not no, really just when you have maybe a really clean dolomite or something like that. So you yeah. can say crystalline dolomite. That is something you would hear a lot. So that's true. That'll work. But then the next thing, according to John and, and Dunham, <laughs> <laughs> is basically that. You know, was your stuff stuck together at deposition or was it not? And so that means, you know, is it, remember, carbonate rocks are born, right? And so a lot of carbonate stuff comes from things like stromatolites, which are, you know, big algal mats and stuff like that. Um, so was your rock stuck together like an algal mat 
or is it just pieces of other stuff? Right. And so if they were bound together during <laughs> deposition, we call it a bound stone. Whoa. <laughs> I like this classification system. <laughs> um, so there's a whole different thing that we'll get to with bound stones as well that came afterwards, but it's part of Dunham's classification scheme. But we'll get to that later. Because the rest of the stuff is the stuff that's not bound together at deposition. But now it becomes a little more, um, a little closer to folk scheme, I guess. Because what you have to decide next is, do you have mud or don't you? So do you have micrite? Or do you, not really do you have micrite or do you have sparite, but do you have it or not? Right. So any mud, go down this other branch. If right. there's... No mud, you just have grains that are stuck together. Mm-hmm. Yep. Then it's a grainstone. Imagine that. <laughs> I don't know that I've ever classified anything as a grainstone. Oh, really? Well, it's really, this is where grainstone, it's hard because so the cement in the grainstone is sparite. It's that sparry calcite. And it's real hard to see sparite in hand sample. So in the field, it becomes difficult to sort of see a grain stone because it's hard to tell if a cement is just crystalline cement or it's just a bunch of like really light colored mud. Um, so it's, grain stone is most often identified petrographically. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. So that's why. And also it's hard to get that, you know, carbonate systems are muddy systems. So usually if you, have a lot of grains and instead of sparite you've got micrite in there it becomes what we call a pack stone right so this is it contains mud and it is grain supported right so those are the two grain supported and what that means is there's enough fossils in them any kind of fossils so not like folks classification at all um any kind of fossils they're all touching each other there you go you got pack stone or grain stone those are your choices and then we go down a little further and say, now it's mud supported. So are there less than 10% grains or more than 10% grains? Are there just a few fossils or are there quite a few fossils? Right. And this is a lot easier than trying to divide things, you know, 60, 40 is 10% or less. That's great. Yeah. And so if there's more than 10% grains, we call it a wax tone. Which is one of the best words in geology and unlike everything else in the Dunham scheme this does not make sense <laughs> why is this pack stone yep grainstone yep boundstone yep if it's less than 10 percent grains if it's mostly mud it's mudstone <laughs> where did wax stone come from <laughs> well i just assumed it goes there's a whole lot of fossils in this one but there aren't many in this one but there's a few. That's whack. <laughs> I'm so sorry. That was the worst dad joke ever. But <laughs> yes. It's late and my brain has been fried by the Rocky Mountain sun. <laughs> yeah. And so I haven't really found, I did a little bit of Googling on this and I didn't find a satisfying answer. Oh, really? Did you find any answer at all though? Not really. Okay. I haven't heard anything. I've heard some people pronounce it wacky stone, which is also funny to me. Yeah. Uh, but it's definitely, it's one of those memorable names. So you can rattle it off pretty. When I'm T 
teaching stuff with Python and we're trying to come up with random different types of rock to put in a dictionary. Uh, Waxstone is one that I come up with pretty often. I'd say that's probably one that everybody comes up with just because of the weirdness of the name. So yeah, I mean, making it memorable helps, right? Yeah. Now there are, you know, you do have to do some memory work to get this decision tree down. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But in the end, you're going to five or maybe six different names in the original 1962 classification scheme. Right, exactly. So you've got your crystalline stuff, whether it's dolomite or just limestone. you got your bound stones, and then anything with fossils, grainstone, pack, or waxstone. And then less than 10%, any kind of fossils at all, mudstone. Fairly simple. Um, the bound stone part has an additional classification uh, that has to do with texture. And this becomes pretty important if you're dealing with this part of the carbonate system. Right. And so this got modified uh, about nine years after the original scale came out uh, by Embry and Cloven. Mm-hmm. And they said, well, you know, Boundstone, it, it's too big of a bucket. <laughs> And, and so th- th- they chunked it up a little bit. Right. And it really is. And the chunking up of it has to do with sort of, if you've done any study on carbonates at all, you know, you got the lagoon, that's where all your junk happens. But in the lagoon, based on your energy levels, you have different sort of types of coral. And so there's that. And then different parts of the lagoon have different types too. You know, you've got really flat fan corals if you have a really steep drop-off that basically grow off the sides of that steep drop-off. And then you can also do some stuff like tear up the coral reef with a hurricane and you can break it up and deposit it in different places. So out in front and in different sizes. And so that's where this modification by Embry Cloven and then later by James in the 80s has to do with breaking these up because these different pieces of bound stone will have different porosity and permeability and therefore different reservoir properties, which is what drives this. Right. Uh, and okay. So let's just go over the classifications here. Uh, one thing I do like about the modifications that Embry and Cloven made as well, which is not really remembered is they defined what mud matrix is. Mm-hmm. They said it is mud matrix if it is material that has a diameter that's less than 30 microns. Yeah, there you go. I, I like numbers. <laughs> yeah, that's why you had to be a geophysicist. <laughs> right. So boundstone gets chopped up into three categories, a baffle stone, a bind stone, and a frame stone. Mm-hmm. And so that is under the autochthonous category, which means they were originally bound together at deposition. Okay. And so baffle bind and frame, all those different types of stones have to do with the shape of the creature that's binding stuff together. So the frame stone, for example, are organisms that build a rigid framework. Okay. Right. What's that? So these are highly supported, I would say, if you look at them under the microscope. They're, I don't know, is geometric the way to put it? 
Yeah. Yeah. You can say that, I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you can go down to a bindstone. Mm-hmm. So this is where you have matrix-supported stuff that is stabilized by the grains and things in it. Right. So encrusting and binding organisms like algae. Right. And then you have a baffle stone. Yep. Organisms that act as baffles. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so what does that look like? I mean, you're going to baffle stuff. So you said in the frame stone, it's geometric. So like polygonal things. So baffle stones are, I mean, to me... It's something that is going to change the way water is flowing through it. So it's changing the currents because it has a lot of branches, basically. So some kind of organisms that act to, like, branch out and kind of change the way that water interacts with them. Hmm. Okay, so this would be, like, sort of layered things. Like a branching coral or something like that. Yeah. Okay, right. yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, so it's baffling the water flow. That's how I imagine it. All right. Mm-hmm. So it's got lots of fingers versus a frame stone, which are like big chunks. Right. And then in addition to chunking up boundstone into these three categories, two, not autochthonous, but alochthonous limestones were also added. So I remember the difference between autochthonous and alochthonous because... Alochthonous is all go. <laughs> I'm sorry. I've just always remembered it that way. So that means that if something is alochthonous, it's not where it started from. And these components of these two alochthonous types of rocks were not originally bound together at deposition. Right. And so these are defined on the texture, I would say. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. So th- there's a rudstone. Which is where the large grains support the framework, support everything else. Mm-hmm. And then there's a float stone where everything else supports the grains. So the grains are floating in the matrix. Right. So it's almost like the, def- the difference between like pack stone and wax stone, how much of your stuff is touching each other. But in a rude stone, you have the pieces are bigger than two millimeters. Okay, yeah, and same in a float stone, right? It has to be bigger than two millimeters, but it has to be not touching other things that are Correct. larger than two millimeters. Right, so these are, yeah, so, you know, you've got your little pack stones and grade stones and wax stones that are, you know, little fossils, and these are big chunks. So this is the stuff, like, if you broke up a reef by a hurricane, and you're going to have huge pieces of big branching corals and, you know, other organisms that are in the lagoon or right on the reef, um, and you break them up and you put them in a big pile, that's going to make your rude stones. And then if you sort of wash those a little further away, that'll make your float stone where they're maybe not all piled up together, but there's still huge pieces of them in there. Right. And so those are the modifications that I learned. Right. Me too. There is another set of modifications that have happened to Dunham's classification. Mm, what year is this? 1992. Okay. What Practically are we doing now? yesterday. Practically yesterday. You're correct. 
and so this was done by Wright and was published in Sedimentary Geology. And it adds a whole different section of now we're not just looking at depositional biological or biological, but now we're looking at depositional biological or diagenetic. Ugh, diagenesis. <laughs> so the problem with looking at sedimentary rocks is that lots of stuff happens to sedimentary rocks after they're deposited. And anything that happens to this rock after it's deposited essentially is known as diagenesis. And so diagenesis can affect rocks in a million different ways. And it affects carbonate rocks too. And it kind of makes it hard to make those classifications sometimes if it diagenetic events have altered the rock so much. Right. So there are a million different diagenetic events. So we're going to group it into five boxes. Yay. More boxes. <laughs> and... I don't know. Have you ever used this part of the classification? Not at all. I had to look it up. <laughs> yeah, I hadn't either. Uh, so instead of going into great detail on yes. it, uh, since I don't think it's commonly used. It is not. It, uh, it, okay, certainly not in the field's work that I've done. Uh, maybe if you work on diagenetic carbonates, this is exactly what you use. I actually don't know. Um, we do a lot of diagenesis in our diagenetic studies in our research group. And I can tell you that no one has ever used any of these words. So if you've mostly got cement, it's a cement stone. Okay. <laughs> uh, if you've got lots of uh, microstylolithites, or microstyloliths, I guess it would be. Yeah, there you go. Mm -hmm. uh, condensed grainstone. Okay. That's hard to follow. And then... Yeah. Um, if most of the grain contacts are microstyloliths instead of just many, it's a fitted grainstone. I don't like most and many as being a, and I am comfortable with ambiguous things. Yeah. I am not, I'm not comfortable with that. <laughs> I mean, I guess to me, most is 51%. I mean, technically it is, but I don't know. I mean, it, I don't, what is a microstylolith? Yeah. <laughs> I don't even know. And so well, what I get out of that is that when you're looking at grain boundaries between things, you see a a modification process, like a pressure okay. solution type process there. Okay, so it's squished together, and the squishing together has caused solution reprecipitation or something like that of the carbonate. Right, so the grain contacts are not as they used to be because of this diagenetic process. Okay, great. So that's that's have... the way I interpret this. Uh, does that sound reasonable to you? Yeah, yeah, no, that sounds reasonable based on, yes, my cursory looking and, yeah. So most becomes a fitted grainstone. Many becomes a condensed grainstone. I don't even know why fitted is a thing. I guess I don't know. I mean, to me, it's okay. This is going to, all of these pieces are going to go much more puzzle like together. Yeah. It's going to be much more packed no, together. So. Packed together. Yeah, once packed you up. modify all these grain contacts. Okay. Because uh, you're literally dissolving the rock so it fits together. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, exactly. Okay. That, that makes sense. And then if you've got uh, just 
you know, mostly crystals, you've obliterated all the original structure. Mm-hmm. You either have a spar stone, or if you have very small, less than 10 micron crystals, you have micro spar stone. Okay. <laughs> now, there is a... I get, I get this because there is a difference between micrite, which is the carbonate mud that is precipitated out of solution with the water or with the help of penicillus algae, it has been, you know, created. There's a difference between that and then diagenetically altering that to create carbonate crystals. So I get this. And you lose that nuance if you're just going to call it a micrite or just call it a crystal and limestone. So this is really the only one that makes sense to me. Yeah, I mean, I see the others. I don't know that I see the need for more boxes. Yes. Because, yeah, it tells you a little bit more about what happened to it, but to me that's not, I'm definitely not going to put on my map that this was a fitted grain stone. No, and... Nor have I ever seen these words really used in literature. So I don't know if this just didn't take off or if this is just something, like you said before, that gets used in the realm that we do not work in. Right. But it is out there, so you should be aware of it. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) I learn something new every day on our podcast. (laughs) Yes. Uh, And, you know, if anybody does know the history of something like Waxstone, please tell us. Yes. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, I was actually having a great conversation with someone while I was uh, in Pennsylvania about how much of the things in our field get lost because nobody knows that history Mm. of why something was made the way it was. That is so true. So true. Yeah. Um, I would be super interested in that etymology. So, yes, please let us know if you know that. Right. And... With that, I think it's time to wrap up our rock classification shows. And I hear the geophysicists, including listener Glenn, who wrote in and said, this is giving me flashbacks. I'm a geophysicist. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) So I I hear them crying, but this is the end. And it's time for everybody's favorite segment of the show. Fun Paper Friday. Yay. So this is what I'd rather be doing than giving oral exams at field camp now, which is playing golf. Yeah, and uh, so this paper comes from our favorite, the BMJ, (laughs) and it's Golf Habits Among Physicians and Surgeons, Observational Cohort Study by Kopelwitz et al. Uh, Yeah, this is great. And so I guess, I mean, not I guess, but, you know, people are like, oh, doctors play golf a lot. Is that true? And who are these doctors that are playing golf? And I thought this was fantastic. Well, and the question that I love that they asked, which is, well, and are they any good at it? Uh, uh, Yeah, that was pretty funny, too. (laughs) (laughs) I did appreciate that part. (laughs) Uh, Now, one thing that I'm hoping this is new for BMJ, uh, Mm -hmm. but they have a visual summary now. I know. I didn't know if this was a BMJ thing or if this was just a Christmas, but it looks like it's a... It's a BMJ thing. I think it is. And this is, of course, a Christmas edition, but it's Mm -hmm. sort of like an infographic. So, you know, the poster that you would hang up to summarize your life's work. (laughs) Yes, exactly. But done, you know, this is really great. (laughs) Or in this case, the poster that you would hang up to summarize the work, you know, a couple afternoons at a bar. Ah, 
<laughs> hey, this one took place on the links, not in the bar. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> I mean, there's bars related to that, but I digress. <laughs> yeah, so they grab a database of U.S. physicians... And they grab the U.S. Golfing Association database where people can self-register their scores and verify handicaps and that kind of thing. And they ended up getting 41,692 matches. Yeah. So physicians who play golf. But I will say that this is physicians who play golf who pay to be a member of USGA so that they can have a handicap. So you have to pay to be a member of USGA and... You have to be playing at places where you can track your scores, too. So there's a little bit of, you know, stuff behind the scenes they don't talk about. So they may be missing out on some people just that don't track their handicap. But right, I I digress. (laughs) But I don't know that paying for USGA would be a big deal for many physicians. Uh, That is probably true. I am not a member, even though I play golf a lot. But yes, you are right. I'm also not that kind of doctor. (laughs) Right. So uh, there were a little over 1 million physicians in the database. And so we're looking at something like 4.1% of the database golfing. Mm-hmm. Which was real low, way lower than I would have ever guessed. True. But what do you think that percentage is for the general public? Higher than 4%? Oh, I would be surprised. Really? Oh, yeah, see? I run with people that play golf, so I don't know. Hmm, interesting. Yeah. yeah, that's probably true. Okay. Now, there was a significant gender difference here. Not surprising at all. So, right. 89.5% of these physicians were golfers were male, and only 10.5% were female. But they did not control for how many males versus females were in the, this database that they could work with anyway. Right. Yeah, that is very true. That's true. So uh, there's that, so, but so there's not surprising. A, a, somewhat of a pass-down bias, probably. Yes, there probably is, but not surprising being on the golf course that only 10% are women. I'm actually surprised it's that high. <laughs> yeah. So I found a, doing some quick searching here, I found a piece on the demographics of golf that says, Almost 10% of the population play golf. Okay. I don't know what they classify as play golf. I would seriously doubt that it's our members of this golf association. Oh, no, 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 no. I doubt it, too. I bet it's just have played golf in the last year or something like that. Right. So then I would say maybe doctors are average-ish. Yeah. Then. Yep, that's probably true. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. Um. What really surprised me was the age of both the male and female physician golfers, the age distribution. Yeah, heavily just, skewed towards the older side. Very heavily skewed. What was the max? Um, 6.2% of physicians 66 to 70 years old were the most likely to golf. That yeah, and this is, is very not, surprising. not Gaussian at all. <laughs> yes, no, not even close. It's like, it's... Yeah, it's like the skewness of a, I don't know, an Aeolian sandstone. I, you're welcome. Great. <laughs> um, yeah, so it was high for men and women. It was that age group, which was very surprising to me, but also means probably that golfers are or physicians are really busy. 
True. And as you get later in your career, you're probably not doing as many late night things or rounds or things. I'm not exactly sure how that profession works, but I could see as you get later and more senior in your career, you might be more in administration. Yeah. Yeah. That's really true. Um, not only did they just do physicians too, but they broke it down by what these physicians were. And this one actually didn't surprise me very much. Um, is that most of them are specialists and surgeons, which makes sense because if you want to go play golf, you know, usually surgeons are very scheduled. So it's not going to be something like there's an emergency. You have to come in sort of thing. So orthopedic surgery was the highest percentage of physicians that played golf at 8.8% of them. Right. And I could also see if you're a general practitioner, when prime golfing hours are, you're looking at, you know, people with sneezing kids. Right. Exactly. And so they don't even make it in the top 10 uh, GPs, the top 10 uh, different, you know, urologists, plastic surgeons, stuff like this, which makes total sense to me. Right. Uh, in terms of average number of games that was played in the last six months, uh, vascular surgery, neurology, and dermatology were the top three. Mm-hmm. Fifteen, too. That's that's impressive, man. Yeah. That's really impressive. Three times, a, three times a month? That's pretty good. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and then uh, in terms of the handicap, so not being a golfer, I learned some things from this paper about how <laughs> handicap works. Uh-huh. And so the lower the handicap, the better the golfer. So vascular surgeons are right up there, along with thoracic surgeons and orthopedic surgeons. Uh, Folks like urologists are in the lower end of that, with handicaps approaching 16. Right. And so, like, you max out handicaps at about 40. The USGA doesn't take care of anything over that. It might even be lower than it might even be 35 or something like that. And that's just so... You know, if you're a really bad player, you get this handicap that says, okay, so you get to take this many strokes off your final score, essentially, is what your handicap is. So as you approach a handicap of zero, that means you're shooting par, you're shooting what is expected and how it's meant to be played. Yeah, and it did say that there is also sort of a a normalization factor for this course is really hard, so you get more or less handicap. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. So if you're playing really hard courses all the time, your handicap takes that into account. Yeah, so that, that was interesting. I learned a few things there. Yeah, mm-hmm, yeah. There's some fancy math that goes along with it, um, and and that's why people get registered with USGA is because you want to have a documented handicap. You don't get to walk up and say, "Hey, I'm a 15," when you're actually an eight, and then you can win a lot of money. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> um. I have to ask you, John, what did you think of these graphics? Because these are just Excel charts with, like, golf balls put in the background, and I think it's hilarious. I mean, it's appropriate for the Christmas edition. (laughs) I thought it was really cool. Are they good? No. (laughs) No, that's why it's even funnier. (laughs) Uh, Figure three is particularly interesting because they have a, a silhouette of a golfer putting at the end of the trend line, so it looks like the golf ball is going along this dotted trend line. I love it. <laughs> these are the best. <laughs> yeah. Oh, these are really good. Yeah, these are my this favorite is, Excel charts you know, ever. Excel and PowerPoint had a baby, and these charts mm-hmm. are it. Yeah, yeah, it certainly is. It's really beautiful. <laughs> I mean, they didn't even do alpha on the background of the golf ball. It's just a white square in the middle of an alpha chart. <laughs> I know. That's why it's funny. <laughs> and they also have a similar for the distribution of golf handicaps. 
um, they have somebody that is teeing off. So it makes it look like it's following the flight trajectory of the ball, which is great. Except the ball keeps getting larger. Except for that. That's a little weird, but... <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know. I would say these are, you know, the worst figures, are, but they're not. No, uh. they're fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so um, how good are these physicians who are playing? They're, you know, they're all right. Yeah, they're eh. rough, roughly average. Yeah, exactly, which I think is pretty funny. Uh, actually, so the mean handicap for male physicians was 15, which is actually a little worse than the medium performance of non-medical golfers. Non-medical golfers. <laughs> Though, remember, mean handicap among physicians versus median performance against non-medical. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we're not comparing means here. We're not comparing medians. We're comparing a mean to a median. So yeah. keep that in mind. Yeah, yeah, that is true. Um, yeah, so that's a limitation. Obviously, what we talked about before, not everybody is registered with the USGA, so you might be missing out on some stuff, but eh, it's probably still a good a good overall view of the demographics. Well, and I mean, one reason you might look at a mean versus a median, right, is you've got a small sample size of physicians, a very large sample yeah. size of everybody else, right? and there's no guarantee that physicians are representative subset. Like, Maybe everybody else that's registered doesn't have as much time as physicians, or maybe they have more time than physicians. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So yeah, there's there are always the normal caveats here of small versus large data, mm-hmm. and we're doing lots of statistics on it. But overall, physicians are relatively commonly known to play golf, especially mm-hmm. if they're male. Yep. And there's not enough data to determine if the fact that they play golf has any effect on their work in terms of either they're more relaxed, they do better and they have a, a higher treatment success rate, or if because they're out playing golf, they pay less attention to learning new things, keeping up and they have a lower treatment success rate. Uh, I love that. One of the caveats too is also it says golfers might also not accurately report their performance, right? Which could bias specialty comparisons. If physicians in certain specialties are more likely to overstate their golf performance, I don't know what these guys have against somebody, but obviously they think urologists lie more than ophthalmologists or something. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Which I thought was really funny. Like, I feel like that was made from like, because this guy went golfing with some dude that was a thoracic surgeon who really cheated a lot. (laughs) Right. (laughs) (laughs) So that made it onto the caveat list. As did the fact that maybe, you know, golf is more popular among physicians in the UK or Australia or any other countries. So maybe this US data isn't an accurate overall golfer's, you know, representation. Right. So if you would like to send us your handicap or your empirical data on how much your physician plays golf, we would love to see those numbers and contribute to this. Shannon, how can folks get a hold of us? Show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. Uh, we're on Twitter. I'm at Shannon Doolin. John is at geo underscore Lehman. And together we are at Don't Panic Geo. You can hang out with us in the Slack chat room on the Software Underground, the Don't Panic channel. And as always, thank you to our Patreon supporters for helping us keep going with this. 
Absolutely. And until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funders.